Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you got your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the continuation of the Thyatira Church. And this is part two. So if you weren't here last week, you can listen online to the first sermon on this. But it's one of the lengthiest passages to one of the churches, Thyatira. And so um, it takes a lot to get through it because there's a lot of history behind it, a lot of stuff going on here that I need to unpack. So believe it or not, we're on number five and six in your outline. We did the other ones. I filled in the blanks. And again, listen next week to have more of the historical points that I was making to kind of get a better concept of what's happening. But just as a little intro, so you can kind of get caught up if you weren't here last week, we're looking at the church of Thyatira, which is called the corrupt church. We'll start in verse 20, but let me give you some background on what was happening during that time and the interpretation of this whole section of Scripture. As we get ready to get into the book of Revelation, as far as the tribulation is concerned, from chapter 6 to 19, the book of Revelation is chronologically laying out, this is the first time in prophetic history that a book of the Bible chronologically laid things out. There were some chronologies here and there scattered in Daniel and Ezekiel and whatnot, but this was the first time in biblical history when John wrote this that he put things in chronological order. And the order that we come up to right now is the church age. He's talking to the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Those seven churches are not only historical churches, but they also lend themselves to a uh, what's called a historical prophetic interpretation. And what I mean by that is, yes, there were certain things happening in that, that locale, but some of the warnings and the promises given to those churches go beyond their boundaries and go beyond to application to all believers of all time in the church age and also how the church age will unfold chronologically. Again, the factor we're looking at with the book of Revelation is that it's laid out in chronological order. That's what John is trying to establish. So when we look at this passage, what we see are epochs or eras of time of the church age, how the church age begins, what will happen in the middle, and what will happen at the end, and what the church will look like. And uh, we're at the stage now in church history, give or take, an estimate in several years, but we're between 600 A.D., and 1517 A.D., when the Protestant Reformation happened, we were in that era, and the era that that dominated was the Catholic Church and continues on to today. That being the case, this period of time between 600 and 1517 is called in church history the pornocracy. The pornocracy. Because not only was idolatry introduced into the church, but sexual immorality was introduced, but also spiritual adultery was introduced. So when we see sexual immorality, a lot of times it's a reference to spiritual adultery with God, that the believers or that church has committed sexual immorality in a spiritual way with God. And that's what happened. And I, I went through a long list of how false doctrine entered the church and the list that I gave you. If you, Again, if you want the list, 
of false doctrine that entered the church, email me or whatever, and I'll send that to you so you can get that into your hands so you have that piece in your Bible as church history um, when all those false doctrines entered the church. This being the case, let me make another caveat to it as we study the book of Revelation and the seven churches. The messages to the seven churches are a message to Christendom, Christendom, or the church age in general. Now, Messiah thankfully told us that the church or Christendom would be made up of wheat and tares in the same unit. Just like Israel had believers and a remnant of believers and a lot of the Israelites were not saved, same thing applies for the church. There's a remnant of believers throughout all of time in the church age, and then the majority of those who claim to be Christians are not. So Jesus told us that this would happen. So that being the case, when you get to the book of Revelation, and you look at the seven churches, the address sometimes is a reference to those who claim to be Christians and are not, and then he'll switch gears and talk to the remnant. And in this passage, he does both. He'll talk to the unbelieving element of the church that claims to be a Christian, and then he'll talk to the believers. So you have to discern that motif when you're dealing with this particular passage or the rest of the passages in uh, dealing with the church. That being the case, we'll go now into the Scriptures, and we're going to pick up in number 5 where we left off, and that will be the starting point. And again, what's happening here is Jesus is exhorting this Thyatiran church to repent. And so let's do your outline. On number five, it says, Jesus exhorts them to repent of their counterfeit Christianity or they will be left behind to go through the tribulation. Yes, the great tribulation is referenced in this passage. So you can see the admonition is to an unbeliever who pretends to be a Christian, whether they're in the Catholic Church or any false church like the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses or Christian Science or parts of Seventh-day Adventism or Orthodox Church, when they're in this Thyateran church that has allowed the Jezebel aspect to infiltrate, they're called to repent of this so they can escape the Great Tribulation. I'll explain this the Great Tribulation and the escape from it in just a bit, but let's dive into the text and understand what was happening. Verse 20 says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. The church is commended for a couple of things they were doing well. They had a lot of programs, but that was about it. He goes, Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach. Now, we've dealt with Jezebel last week, but just because he's restating it again, Again, let me explain what's happened. Not only has there a local situation happened where a woman has done something, but the Jezebel aspect is a principle of false religion. The Jezebel aspect, the reason it's referred to as Jezebel, is Jezebel in, in Old Testament history was the first person to introduce false religion into the religion of Israel. They had worshipped the golden calf. Rehoboam had set up golden calves, but those were corruptions of the worship of Yahweh. But she was the first one to introduce false religion. So what's happened here, in the local situation, a woman has infiltrated and is introducing false doctrine, false religion, into this local church. Some conjecture that it's the pastor's wife. It actually wouldn't surprise me. That pattern in biblical history... It's very common that the wife of the pastor is one of the ones that introduces false doctrine. And you see that today with what's going on. 
But the bigger thing on the historical prophetic interpretation is that this element, the false church that she's bringing with her, a false paradigm, a false religion, is from what we call the whore of Babylon. She's the harlot. She is the false church. She is the woman of wickedness in Zechariah chapter 5. It's the idea of what started at the Tower of Babel, all false religion, and she is metaphorically bringing that false religion into the church. So that's how you interpret the Jezebel aspect. And we looked at last week in Matthew 13 that the Jezebel aspect of false religions would be introduced by a woman into three mills in Matthew 13. And the three mills are loaves, representing the Catholic Church, Orthodox, and Protestantism. And that once the woman introduces the leaven into the loaf, it will permeate through the entire loaf. Thus telling us that Jesus is saying every aspect of the church, all three branches of the church, will be corrupted at the end. There will only be a remnant left. Well, she's done this, and she's entered into Thyatira and introduced the leaven into the loaf, and it's caused problems. I want to make a note here, an application before we move on. Notice it says in verse 20 that she calls herself a prophetess. It was not wrong to have a woman who was a prophetess in a church. She had to be under authority, but she could prophesy in the church. But notice what she's doing. She teaches. She calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and seduces my servants to commit sexual immorality, eat things sacrificed to idols. As Solomon said, there's nothing really new under the sun. This has been going on from the early days of the church till now. Even the trend today as you can see, is there's woman pastors. That is a violation of 1 Timothy 2.12. Paul said to Timothy, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, which means that the woman cannot preach from the pulpit to a mixed audience, nor can she be the senior pastor. Can you have women as ministry leaders? Yes, you can, but they cannot be the leadership of the church. Men are to be the leaders of the church. Deacons are to be men, not, not women. The husband of one wife, you can't be the husband of one wife if you're a woman. It's very clear. So then what's going on here? Well, back in that day and even today, there is a violation of what Paul told Timothy. They excuse it away. Well, it's because they lacked education. Paul never said it was because of a lack of education. Paul told Timothy it's a creation order. That's why. Adam was created first, and he says it was the woman who was deceived, not Adam. So he gives a creation order and a twofold creation order of why women are prevented from being in the pulpit and being the senior pastor of a church. Yet today, what do you see? Prophetesses, pastrixes, guys making their wives a pastor, preaching alongside of them. This is what they'll do. They'll set up a little table and it'll be the pastor sitting in a chair and the wife will be sitting in the chair and she's actually teaching a mixed congregation. This is constant. And the big celebrities are all doing it. Rick Warren, Louis Giglio, Joel Olstein, Levi Lusco, Brian Houston. They all bring their wives up there. And then there's some churches that just flat out totally don't even bring the guy up. They just have the woman just straight up teaching. Like Paula White, Joyce Myers, Beth Moore, and Juanita Bynum. And the list goes on and on. But notice the first thing out of the box that Jesus says, she's teaching. She's teaching my people to commit sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So at the very get-go, when you see on TV a woman preacher or a pastor bringing his wife up on stage talking, 
It is a complete violation of Scripture, and the door has been opened. The door has been opened to false doctrine, and it will inevitably happen. That's how serious it is. Look, the demons know all about authority. And this is an authority issue. It's not a misogynistic issue. It's an authority issue. There are proper authorities in a home. The man is a spiritual leader. He's the proper authority in the home. The woman is not. That's just the way that God created. It doesn't make the woman less of value. It just says there's proper authority, and you must march in those authorities. If you do not march in the authority, Satan will capitalize on it. And he did it through this woman. He was able to interject false teachings. Now, let's talk about this commit sexual immorality and the, and the eat things sacrificed to idols. Obviously, what she introduced in there, and the historical note is this. It probably was a reference into the guilds that people belong to. In order to do business, you had to belong to a guild. Well, in order to be a part of that guild, you had to practice pagan festivals and rites in order to be part of that guild, in order to make money. So there was the compromise. And she probably came in and told this church, hey, we can do this. We're all under grace. We're all under love and acceptance. And we can practice in these pagan practices so we can still keep doing business. God doesn't want us to be poor. He wants us to be wealthy and, and prosperous and have our business. God wouldn't want us to lose our business, would he? I can almost imagine her saying that because of exactly what they say today in order to compromise. It probably went something like that. Well, the minute they practiced these guild practices of paganism, it introduced sexual immorality because they had temple prostitutes. So to worship these false deities, you would do it through the sexual act, and that's exactly what happened into this church. But on the, the historical prophetic interpretation, there's something bigger on the application here. It is a spiritual point that Jesus is making. And the spiritual point is this, the sexual immorality is referring to spiritual adultery. That's what it's referring to. And obviously the idols is a spiritual issue of worshiping false gods. That's what's been introduced. Now, you might have said, and I don't know if this has entered your mind, but you said, Jesus is telling this church and telling us not to eat food sacrificed to idols. But yet, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 8 said, What's the big deal about eating food sacrificed to an idol? Jerusalem Council, even when they were trying to figure out what to do with us Gentiles, recommended that the Gentiles abstain from eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, this is curious, but this is an important point. Why would Jesus and the Jerusalem Council, which is still in effect today, by the way, tell us not to eat food sacrificed to idols... But then Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 say, well, I won't eat it. There's nothing inherently wrong with the food itself. I won't eat it in deference to you because I don't want you to cause, cause you to stumble. But really, food sacrifice idol is no big deal. It almost appears that there's a contradiction. But there's not. And this is a good point of application to understand what, what is Jesus talking about versus what's Paul talking about. Jesus and the Jerusalem council are talking about the substance of the food sacrifice to idol versus Paul who's talking about the form of the idol. Now, let me explain this. Paul, If Paul was here, he would say, if you went into the marketplace and there was a, meat, a piece of meat that you bought and you brought it home and you cooked it and ate it, it's no big deal. 
because you basically bought the meat, even though it was sacrificed to an idol, you brought it home to eat it. No big deal. But he goes, if that offends you, I won't do it. That's a form. It's not a substance. It's a form. It's a piece of meat. The meat is the form. The meat in the pagan context is being used to sacrifice to idol. The meat in your home is being used to cook, to eat. It's form. What Jesus and the Jerusalem council are saying is substance. It's not about the eating. It's about practicing pagan rituals, pagan forms of worship by eating meat sacrificed to an idol. It's substance versus form. Let me give you an example so you can kind of understand what Jesus is trying to say. Pagans decorate their home with plants, do they not? They're big on creation worship, right? But yet you and I put plants in our own home. Is it wrong or pagan to put plants in our home? No, it's not. Just because someone uses a form of creation in their worship of pagan deities doesn't mean you and I couldn't have a plant in our home. It's the same form, but the context is different. We're doing it to beautify our home. We're not doing it to worship anything. What Jesus is saying is, if you worship the plant like they do, that's what I have a problem with. You're using the same practices that pagans use to worship me. And I will not stand for it. In fact, sometimes they weren't even worshiping him. They're worshiping foreign deities. That's what Jesus has a problem with. So I want you to make sure you understand the difference between form and substance because this will really mess you up if you confuse the two. A lot of believers make this mistake and they jettison all forms of anything related to paganism. And they make big mistakes like the Jehovah Witnesses who don't celebrate birthdays, don't celebrate holidays and stuff like that. They have thrown the baby out with the bathwater because they confuse the form with the substance. If you confuse the form and the substance, I guarantee you where you're heading. You're heading to legalism. That's where you're heading. So make sure you keep the two separate. Okay. Substance. Jesus against them doing the substance. Well, what do you mean by that? What was happening? Well... If you look in church history, what was happening, they made their Eucharist into a holy item, and the Eucharist meaning the bread and the wine, and they said that that turned into the body and blood of Jesus. And then when that did that, they created an idol. Now, they made people bow before it. It was truly, they thought, Jesus in the flesh. And so that created an idol. And what did they do? They ate it as well, didn't they? That was a foreign idol that got introduced, and they started practicing a pagan substantial practice. The other practices they did, they started worshiping the saints, and they started worshiping Mary, which they still do today. They say they don't, but they actually do. The majority of Catholics all throughout the world, especially in Latin America, Central America, South America, and even in North America, are petitioning the Pope for Mary to be a co-redemptrix with Jesus. They want her as a quadrity, not a trinity. It's very pagan. That's like worshiping a female deity. Okay, as an application of this, understand this, for us today, and there was a lot of other things that happened as well, but it was an introduction of false religion and the practice of false religion in the Christianity. Scripture forbids the way of paganism. 
It forbids it in our form of worship of Messiah. Well, explain this for today. Well, a lot of churches today are doing forms of paganism in their church. Yoga is a major problem, and it's a Hindu practice. It's a worship practice in Hinduism. Yet Christian churches are practicing yoga and have yoga classes. Contemplative prayer and centering prayer comes from Hinduism. It's part of transcendental meditation. Lectio Divina, prayer circles, that comes from witchcraft. Prayer labyrinths comes from the Desert Fathers, which got it from the Hindus. Coloring mandalas. Have you noticed in the stores today, there are a lot of coloring things? It's in the Christian bookstores, and they'll have you color. That comes from Buddhism. That comes from blanking at your mind as you color so you can have an experience. Coloring mandalas is forbidden. You're not to do that to worship Jesus, yet people are doing it. Or some Christians will come up and say, you know what, God has given me the gift of clairvoyance and psychic abilities. Oh, no, he didn't. That's not a gift. If you have clairvoyance and you have psychic abilities and you can predict the future or, or see something, uh, even like a Mark Driscoll a long time ago said he could see people's sins and see what they did last night and stuff like that. That doesn't come from God. That comes from demons. Demons give people clairvoyance and psychic abilities. It's not a Christian practice, but yet it's held as it must be a gift of God. It's a gift of discernment. It's not. I talked about transcendental meditation, or the new one is blanking out your mind so that God can speak to you. Let his still, small voice talk to you. I can tell you this, if you blank out your mind in any form or fashion and then expect God to whisper to you, it won't be God who's talking to you. It'll be another individual that talks to you. It'll be a demon because you're opening yourself up to that occult. And you can get there through spiritual practices or you can get there through drugs. Either way, if you get there, guess what'll happen? You'll start hearing voices. You will hear things talk to you. They will start guiding you. And yes, they are very active and people don't realize it. They'll say, well, well, uh, God talked to me. It's not God. Things like that. For instance, and I think I mentioned this last time, the Catholic practices you know are pagan. A lot of the Eucharist things, the seven sacraments, and a lot of that stuff was picked up from paganism and what they practiced, like Lent and Ash Wednesday and obviously the Eucharist or lighting of candles, staring at pictures of saints, Catholic versions of penance. Here's what's shocking to me, because I grew up Catholic, and I came out of this. People are now practicing this in evangelical churches, and I'm just wondering, what's wrong with these people? And then now people are wanting to uh, go back to the Catholic Church and say that's our mother church and stuff, and this is coming from Protestants and evangelicals. That's scary. A return to Rome? That's forbidden. With that being said, the admonition application for us is do not allow yourself or your family to start practicing pagan practices and baptize it just because you call it Christian. There's a lot of people are doing yoga and just because they call it Christian yoga and they were memorizing verses doesn't make it right. That is the worship of, of a Hindu God. And you will have problems. I'm not saying every time you do it, you'll have problems. I'm just saying you open the door to it. Now, we go to verse 21, and he's going to talk about giving her a time to repent. And he says, And I gave her a time to repent of her sexual immorality, her spiritual adultery, and she did not repent. 
So, and we look at church history, what happened, even in the historical situation, there was time given. God always gives people time to repent. He gave this church time to repent, and they didn't. And they gave the Catholic church time to repent, and is still giving the church time. Or any church that has been infiltrated by this whore of Babylon, he's given them a time to repent. It's been about 1,500 years, guys, since the Catholic church, as we know it, ensued itself in... 600 A.D. till now, and nothing has changed. The last council was Vatican II. Nothing has changed. It's still going the same way. Here's the question. God has given this church time to repent, to get its act straight, but yet they do not. There are three reasons, primary reasons, why the Catholic Church in and of itself has not repented. And these principles are universal. They're universal for the Eastern Orthodox, and they're universal for even Protestantism, who's let the Jezebel aspect come into her. It's three reasons. I'll give you them right now. The first thing that kept the Catholic Church and is keeping the Catholic Church from repenting is money. The Catholic Church is the wealthiest false church on this planet and was back then and is today. They estimate, and this is from Arvo Manhattan, and this is from uh, another article I read, The Economist. That's where I got it from, The Economist. The Economist estimates the church, the Catholic church today, spends $171 billion per year. That's in 2010, guys. They employ over 1 million people. In comparison, so you can get your arms around what's happening here, General Electric's revenue is $150 billion. Walmart employs 2 million people. Think about that. If the Catholic Church was a business, it would be one of the largest businesses in the world. By the way, estimates over the last 15 years that the Catholic Church has paid over $3.3 billion in settlements of rape and molestation cases of priests in America. They are the largest landowner, not only in Europe, but also in Manhattan. Again, this reference to Arvo Manhattan, he's wrote extensively on the Catholic Church. Chick Publications uh, publishes him in his book called The Vatican Billions. Just to get a glimpse of them, he says, The Vatican has large investments with the Rothschilds of Britain, France, and America, with the Hambros Bank and the Credit Suisse in London and Zurich. In the United States, it has the largest investments with Morgan Bank, Chase Manhattan Bank, First National Bank of New York, the Bankers Trust Company, and others. The Vatican has billions of shares in the most powerful international corporations such as Gulf Oil, Shell, General Motors, Bethlehem Steel, General Electric, International Business Machines, TWA. Some idea of the real estate and other forms of wealth controlled by the Catholic Church may be gathered at their national conference. Knowing that this church body ranks second only to the United States government in total annual purchase. Did you hear that? It ranks second to us. They are the largest, wealthiest, false church on this planet. And no one even comes close. Money is one of the things that leads to number two. Power. Because money gets you power. They're drunk on power. When nearly 2 billion adherents, they can control 2 billion people on the planet. And the way this pope, this new pope, is speaking to himself, he's appealing to a lot to the globalists and a lot to the liberal left. And he's getting a lot of people to come to his side. 
They control the majority of people on this planet. It's very controlling. And the last one is prestige. Or we would use the word fame. Money, power, and prestige. But the idea is that the Catholic Church has made its mark in history. It's making its dent on history. They want to be known throughout the world. So it's kind of a celebrity status thing. To be recognized. To fit into the world system. That's why. And the Catholic Church fits right inside the world system. Think about what this new Pope says. He's more worried about a false view of climate change than he is about warning people about hell. Why is that? Why is he such a Marxist or a communist? Why does he speak the language of a globalist? Because he is. And because he's appealing to the global community that I'm a player and I want to fit into this scheme. Huh. That's why. Those three things, they're very basic, very simple, but that's why they refuse to repent. And that's why a lot of churches who have a let the Jezebel aspect enter their church, that's why they won't give it up. You think in the Protestant wing, we're no different. The Protestant wing, the biggest money makers are the health and wealth prosperity wing of Christianity. The whacked out, hyper charismatic movement is making the most money. And why won't they stop? Because of money, power, prestige. They won't stop. It's happening even in Protestantism. So time is given, and the church is going through stages. Let's do an application before we move on, even for our own personal selves. You and I sitting in a church, and let's just put ourselves back in uh, 600 A.D., and you're sitting there as a Bible-believing Christian, and all of a sudden your pastor introduces, hey, by the way, we're going to make the host, we're going to do a sacrifice on an altar, and we're going to re-sacrifice Christ. This is his real body. This is his real blood. So you need to genuflect and worship the host. Did it happen like that? And overnight, someone said, okay, whatever you say, man. No, it doesn't work like that. And let me show you the pattern, how it worked, not only in history, but it works on individuals. And this is extremely important because this is what's happening in the church today. The first thing that gets us to accept false doctrine or false teachings or false practices is an overexposure of the issue. So back in history, wherever you went, all the cardinals, all the bishops and stuff were doing it. There wasn't a church you couldn't go to that wasn't doing it. It was everywhere. And it's just like modern-day sins today. When you look on TV or go to the show... Every show has a homosexual or lesbian in it. Everything. Every commercial has got it in there. And why is that? It, they know that an overexposure to something causes individuals to become apathetic and to start tolerating it. And the overexposure happened in history and it happens today. It, see, an overexposure is meant to break down your resistance. You keep seeing that on TV, and what do people think? What do people without Christ start thinking on TV? Is that constantly the issue? Well, I guess everyone's doing it. You know, it's just the way the world's going, and they acquiesce to it. And so what happens is 
phase number two is the sin of tolerance. The people in the pews start tolerating it, or the society starts tolerating it. And they tolerated this prophetess. They all stood around and let this woman do her thing. They tolerated it. Everyone was doing it. So here's what happens. It happens in churches. Starts happening in leadership or starts happening in a pocket of the church, and people turn a blind eye to what's going on. Yeah, you tell them, yeah, I know about it, but they really don't take it serious. They don't want to deal with it. It's happening with the pastor. It's happening in a Bible study. It's happening to a teacher. It's happening to the books the church is recommending. And people say, yeah, yeah, I know it's wrong. You tell them, hey, you shouldn't be reading that. You shouldn't be listening to that. Yeah, I know. They become apathetic because they're overexposed. They're indifferent, which is the characterization of the Laodicean church. And then you know what happens? Stage number three, curiosity. Everyone's doing it. Maybe I should try it. Everyone's worshiping the host, following in line what that pastor says. I guess I'll do it. I'll try it out and see how it works for me. And then the curiosity causes someone to taste the sin, to experience it, just like Eve did. And then once they taste it, the entrapment happens. There's an addictive quality to it. And then the baggage comes and no one sees the baggage and then the struggle with it. You can put that rubric on any sin, any false teaching, any false method, that it starts with an overexposure, people become indifferent, and then they start accepting it as normal. And then they do it. And once they do it, they're trapped. That's how Satan is working. That's what he did with this church. She overexposed them to everything that was going on. And they haven't turned back since. Let's go to the last point. We'll flush it out a little bit more. Or verse 22, I should say, not 7. Verse 22. The consequence of this. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. Huh. Isn't that funny? He uses the word sickbed. You like laying in bed and seducing my people? to your pagan practices. The idea is the sexual immorality of, of spiritual adultery. He goes, I'll give you a bed. And those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. That reference into great tribulation is a reference to Matthew 24, and it is a direct reference to the tribulation that he's getting ready to talk about in chapters 6 through 19. If you don't repent, Thyatira, I'm going to leave you behind and I'm going to put you through the tribulation. Now we have to go back to the context. Remember, who is he talking to? Remember I told you wheat and chaff. He is talking to those in Christendom who claim to be Christians who are not, whether Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant, the three divisions, anyone who claims to be a Christian He says, if you don't get rid of the Jezebel aspect and worship me only, accept me only, I will leave you behind into great tribulation. I will put you in that sickbed of the great tribulation. And you know what? That's what will happen. We already know what happens. The great whore will infiltrate the church, and she is doing so right now, and she will create a one-world religion through this false church that will incorporate all other faiths, and she will be the dominant factor for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. She 
will kill people. Now, this woman that's so tolerant, and you hear the terms today, oh, you got to be tolerant, you got to be loving, you got to do this, you got to be that, and it all sounds good. But the Jezebel aspect, the whore of Babylon, when she takes power in the tribulation, and you don't jive with her, you don't line up with her, she will cut your head off, literally. For the first three and a half years of the tribulation, she will be the major enforcer of murdering thousands upon thousands or millions upon millions of believers in the tribulation. And she will do it by cutting their heads off. I don't know what will happen. Maybe they'll institute guillotines all over the planet. I don't know. But the method will be decapitation. She's not someone to be played with, and yet churches are playing with her today. She's a killer. She's the spawn of Satan, so to speak. It's his religious system to get people to not worship Yahweh and Jesus, but to worship him through these false religions. So what Jesus is promising anybody who claims to be a believer but is a fake, you will go through the tribulation. But what's the positive? The positive aspect is those who have escaped from the Jezebel aspect, from the horror of Babylon, who are true Bible believers, who are the remnant, what is the promise? You will be removed before this time. He will take you off the planet, and he will. we call it the rapture, the harpazo, and you will be taken into heaven with him for seven years while the tribulation is going on. You will be spared from that wrath. He'll tell the other churches that later on, But he is warning this church, if you don't get it right, you will be left behind. Now, here's some conjecture, but I think it goes to bear in mind what's happening here. Let's just imagine you and I were raptured right now or raptured tonight or in the near future, and we're gone. We're taken to heaven. We left this world. Think about all the false believers in the churches who will still be here. It's conjecture, but maybe some of them say, wow, I wasn't a believer, I'm going to get right, and they get saved and whatnot, and they will get a second chance in that sense. But think about what they will tell each other who don't believe, or even what the world system tells them, of why they are still here. I can almost imagine what they're going to say. I can almost predict what they're going to say. They're going to say, God took away all the bad people. God took away all the false believers who were mean and hateful and vindictive, and he left behind the good people, the good Christians, to establish the kingdom. Because right now in Christendom, the biggest movement right now among all the millennials and all these wackadoo churches you see out there is what's called a post-millennial view. Now, you don't need to know the technical term, but you need to know the application. What that means is that the majority of Christians see themselves as being able to bring the kingdom on earth without Messiah. And they're doing it through social justice. How many Christians are caught up in the social gospel slash social justice? We're going to be a defender of rights. We're going to, def- we're going to do this. We're going to do all these social causes. Tell me once in the Great Commission where he says, deal with the social causes of the world. He didn't. He said, evangelize them, make them disciples. That's the solution. It's not creating heaven on earth, but that's what a lot of Christians today are being taught, and it fits in with their paradigm. If we were to be raptured, what they would say about us. They say, well, these guys weren't fit to help bring the kingdom. 
thank God God took them out of here. And what they don't realize is hell is about to be unleashed on them. They are false believers. So if you start naming names, yeah, that means the Catholic Church, that means the Mormons, the Jehovah Witnesses, parts of Seventh-day Adventists, Christian Science, and the list keeps going on and on. They will be left behind because they either deny the person of Jesus or they deny the work of Jesus. And if you do that, you will be left behind. And that's what his reference is about. Now, I'm giving you a time to repent 1,500 years and counting. You can get this right and escape. Anybody can escape because they have free will. You can do it. But if you don't, I'm putting you on that bed. And he goes, unless they repent of their deeds, and verse 23, very strong language, I will kill her children with death. This is why the book of Revelation is not taught in the feel-good churches. Jesus is telling you and me and the false believer, I will kill her followers. I will kill them. And I have every right to kill them, Jesus is saying. I'm the one who created them. But because they refuse to repent, I will give them a death blow penalty for this. And I will kill them during the tribulation. Wow. Is that your picture of Jesus? Do you understand now why pastors refuse to teach the book of Revelation? Very hard preaching. Very hard passages. Jesus saying, I'm going to kill you. If you don't get this right, how will he do it? Well, all you have to do is flip through the pages of chapter 6 through 19, and you can see how he does it. And it's not pretty. You'll either be killed if you get left behind as a false convert. You'll get killed by the Antichrist. You'll get killed either by the horror of Babylon or the three world wars or famine will kill you. You'll starve to death or you won't have any water because all the waters has turned to blood and there's nothing for you to drink. Or let's just play it out. There's a book written, and I forget what the title is. It's something like one minute after something happens, like an EMP goes off. Imagine the United States, if an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse, went off over the United States, and it sent us back to 1875. Just imagine that for a second so you can relate to this. How long would people live who are on medication? How long would people go who are on mental medication? How long would they go until they lose it and running through the streets? How long would it be? I know that book's a fictional book, but it shows you a little picture. I know the author wasn't talking about the tribulation, but it shows you that once the rapture happens, all hell breaks loose here. There is no order. Imagine all the people who can't get their meds. Imagine all the people who can't get medical help. Imagine the people who need certain food items and they can't get it or they can't get a water because it's all blood. I don't care how much you prep, you will not be able to survive the tribulation. It's for seven years and that's how they'll die. How about the ecological disasters, the cosmic disturbances to the planet that happen? Meteorites pound the earth. One meteorite nearly shakes the earth off its rotation of the sun and the sun scorches the inhabitants of the earth and if you think that's bad how about all the demonics 200 million demonics being released at the great river euphrates attacking and killing people destroying them so you have ecological problems but you have supernatural demons and you actually be able to see the demons revelation 9 shows you what they look like and they will be attacking people 
sores and plagues breaking out, darkness over the earth that causes pain, earthquakes, and then most people don't want to go there, but I will. You can be killed through the, through the, the plagues and the 21 judgments of Revelation if you're a false convert. But if you survive and you make it to the end, somehow you hit up in a cave or something like that and you had some food sources or something like that and you made it and you're still not a believer, you're going to have to deal with Jesus. Because at that point, if you're in the Antichrist army, he will slay you with the power of his mouth. And people don't like to think about it. But the blood will be as high as the horse's bridle and 200 miles square, a lake of blood from the Antichrist's armies. He kills them just like that. And then there's what's called the sheep and goat judgment that follows. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. This is a Gentile judgment. And anyone who claims they know him and they don't will be put on his left. And he will then destroy them and send them straight to hell right on the spot. So even if they make it, guess who they got to contend with? Jesus. And he will kill them. I know that doesn't sound politically correct. I know that doesn't make for a good Sunday morning. You're getting ready to have lunch and it's going to mess up your lunch. I get it. But do you understand why this truth is not taught? Because the pastors don't want to tell you that. But your scripture tells you that. The Scriptures say, and I'm going to tell you everything the Scriptures say, so that you have a full perspective of Jesus and who He is, and He's the God that comes back as the line of the tribe of Judah, and He is not tolerating this kind of nonsense, this ecumenical movement. What's application on this, man? That's just pretty tough. The application is you must understand what's currently happening around you. This is why every week I'm telling you of new things that are popping up. Watch out for this. Watch out for that. Because the formation of the one world religion and the one world government, I should say, is forming right in front of our very eyes. She's in the church. She's here with us. She's infiltrated. And they're promoting, follow me, spirituality without obedience. Spirituality without obedience. That's her calling card. That you and I can be spiritual without being obedient. That you and I can have mystical religious experiences without obedience. Do you know what the new trend now today is? And there's not even a name for it, but I will tell you what's happening so you can be aware of it. You know about the health and prosperity gospel, right? The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. The new thing that's attracting these millennials and attracting a lot of people is a movement. It's kind of a post-millennial movement that we're going to bring the kingdom to earth and that the pastors have become prophets and apostles. Yeah, that's the new movement. And they're not per se happening at the churches because of social media and the other media venues that you can have on your phone or whatever, they're having conferences. And in these conferences, like in the, the other day, old days, you'd have to have a dynamic speaker and some good music and, and yada, yada, yada. And that boy, that would really bring the crowd. Not today. You know what it is? The speakers are really sometimes bad. But you know what the speaker offers? He tells them that he's either a prophet or an apostle, and he can give them a direct experience with God. 
So the whole worship service or conference will be these people coming forward to have a mystical experience. That is the largest trend happening in Christianity right now. You go to one of these conferences like up to Bethel Redding or whatever, and you go there and you have a liver quiver and you have this emotional experience where you're crying and you're slain in the spirit and you do ecstatic utterances or whatever the nonsense is, and before you know it, you're hooked. That's the new movement, by the way. And what is her values? I think you already know what the whore's values are. Her values is tolerance without any rules, love without any limitations, acceptance without any conditions. She sounds moral, doesn't she? But she accepts every strange and wackadoo behavior. You have to accept that behavior. If people say they want to marry a tree or a horse, you have to accept it. Because if you don't, you're a hater, you're intolerant, you're a homophobe, you're an Islamophobe. You can't disagree with her. She can't kill you yet, but she can ostracize you. And she gives people the freedom to do whatever pleases them. That's her calling card. It's apostasy. Sexual misconduct, no problem. Do whatever makes you feel good. You're under grace, baby, she says. God still loves you. Go act like a devil. You're still under grace. That's her calling card. She's here. And let me tell you prophetically what will happen to her. She's gaining momentum and she's gaining power. She's controlling most of the, the, the churches in America that are controlling the narrative. She has this seven mountain mandate. Have you heard that? If you ever listened to Glenn Beck, he touts it on his show, even though he's a New Age Mormon, the seven mountain mandate. Have you heard that? They're going to infiltrate into government, infiltrate into politics, and infiltrate into education, infiltrate into the church or whatever, whatever the, the things are, and they're going to take over and Christianize them. Oh. Basically, it's, it's a, a mandate. It's, their, it's the horror's great commission. You follow me? She intends to take over every aspect of society, and she's enumerated it through the seven categories. She wants to infiltrate everything. So the false church is following in along with her, infiltrating different a avenues and sections of society. That's why they're promoting social justice and social gospel and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And she's powerful, folks. She's very, very powerful. You don't want to contend with her if you're Richard Dawkins. You see, atheism won't win the day. Never will. Never. It, it can't. Because people are spiritual in nature. God says, I put eternity in, in humans' hearts. People want to be spiritual. They want to worship. I'm giving an example how powerful she really is. Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, is doing his tour in America. He's having people unbaptized in through his tour. Have you heard that? That's how he's, he's nuts, right? But he's the high priest of atheism. He's invited to Berkeley. He's going to speak at Berkeley. He's going to speak all over the nation. But Berkeley uninvited him. Really? Because you think Berkeley would be in line with atheism. Oh, no, they're not. They said, don't come because we don't want you upsetting our Muslim students. Guess who won the day? You see how she plays? 
An atheist like Richard Dawkins is not going to win against the Jezebel or whore of Babylon. She will trump him every time. And she's doing it right now. She's controlling the schools. She's controlling the media. She's everywhere. Jesus says this, though, and, and we continue on. He says, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. I'm going to do this for my remnant. The remnant that sees this, I'm going to do this for them. You know why he says that? Because of how much you and I have to put up with. That's why. He said, I'm going to show this to them. And I will give to each one of you, talking to the remnant, not the false believers, according to your works. Thank you, Lord. I needed to hear that. Because you know what? You and I are suffering under the Jezebel aspect. How so? Do you know who the biggest people who hate us as Bible-believing remnant Christians? It's those who claim to be Christians and are not. Those are the ones who have the most that are coming against us, that are marginalizing us, calling us haters and bigots and all this junk. We're trying to go by biblical principles and whatever topic it is, and you and I end up being castigated as evil. Jesus is saying to you and I, the remnant, I understand what they're doing. I get it. Hang in there. I have told you and I'm telling them what I'm going to do. I'm going to rapture you, the remnant, out of here, but they're going to be left behind. And if you do good and stay in your position and fight your good fight, I will reward you. Hang in there. Stand fast according to all the works that you have to do. That's the faithful remnant. Thank God Jesus sees that, and he's telling us that. Because you know why? That gives us strength. That gives us power. How so? Well, that's the application. Because Jesus is telling us, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to protect you. I'll get you through it, and I'll take you home with me. And they're going to be the ones left behind. That gives us the strength to never sacrifice truth for peace. To never sacrifice truth for unity. Because that's what the whore keeps saying. She goes, just just put along our theological differences and get along, is what she says. Don't sacrifice truth for tolerance. Tolerance in the way the world sees it. Not tolerance in the biblical sense, but tolerate that every wackadoo behavior, every wackadoo belief has to be tolerated. I have to sit here, and they're telling you and I to tolerate Sharia law. Never give in to that. Never sacrifice the truth for security. Remember I told you the reason the Catholic Church has not repented is because they have money. That money gives them security. They won't give it up. The charismatic wing that's making all the money in Protestantism will not give it up because it's so much money. It's oodles and oodles and oodles of money. It's giving them security, but they sacrifice truth to do that. Or they sacrifice truth for a worldly advantage. It's Christians that want to drive Rolls Royces, Bentleys, and, and Corvettes, and Benny Hinn will say it's because God's blessing him. Unbelievable, right? He sacrificed truth for material blessings and for money. And then, please, because we have that power from Christ, never sacrifice truth for relationships. That's where she'll get you. See, you know what the whore is doing right now to your family? You need to be aware of this. 
she is looking at your family. And she is seeing the weakest link in your family. And she's going to go after the weakest link to corrupt them and to get you to have to deal with it. To get your eyes off Jesus, to get your eyes thinking that they're the problem, and it becomes a distraction. And she's going after causing dysfunction after dysfunction after dysfunction in people's families. And no one's spotting this. Do you know why she causes dysfunction in families? It's because when you're spending all your time dealing with the weakest link because they've gotten out of control, you can't do anything for Christ. You're so focused here, you can't serve him. You can't evangelize him. You can't even think about Christianity because you're so laser-beamed on the problem in the home because of the dysfunction. Do you know why Elijah has to come back? Elijah will come back prior to the tribulation. He will. It's predicted he comes back to set the hearts of the fathers on the children and the children's hearts on the fathers. Elijah is coming back for Israel to mend their dysfunctional families. Do you know why? Because when you have harmony in a home, it makes it a lot easier for you to accept Christ. So the way God preps Israel is he gets their families straightened out. Think about how much dysfunction in families are there. Everybody in here can say, yeah, I have it, I have it, this person, that person. Look how big of a distraction that person is to your family. The Jezebel goes after that, and she capitalizes on that. And at the same time, if you've allowed that to be a distraction, you're not serving. That's how she's working against the church. The last point is point number six. Jesus promises believers the position to rule and share his royal splendor in the messianic kingdom. Verses 24 through 29. Now to you I say, to the rest in Thyatira, as many who do not have this doctrine, this Jezebel doctrine of false doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan as they say. Really, he's turning the phrase. They say, these are the deep things of God, is what they're saying. These are the, the ways you get in touch with God. And he's saying, those are not the deep things of God, it's the deep things of Satan. Jesus is turning the, uh, turning the phrase on them. And these deep things of God, as I mentioned, is spirituality without obedience. It's experiences without obedience. And this could be through uh, visualization, fasting, pharmacological, through drugs and alcohol, altered states of consciousness, religious rituals, breathing techniques, music, the repetition of drum beats in music, meditation, mysticism, body posturing, Eastern mysticism, idolatry, all of that is called the deep things of Satan. It puts you in touch with the demonic realm, is what Jesus is saying. He goes, I will put on you no other burden. He's talking to the remnant. But hold fast what you have till I come. He's talking about the rapture for the remnant. I'm not going to put any other burden on you. Escape her. Get rid of her. Run from her. If you're in a church and the Jezebel has infiltrated, get out of that church. Don't sit there and say, I have friends at that church. I can't leave. Baloney. Exit. Because the Jezebel is there. 
So many people stay in churches because they're security. Well, I have my Bible study and I have my friends. You're not going to be able to throw that Jesus's way at the Bema seat when he says, why did you stay in a church that introduced the Jezebel aspect? Well, I had friends there. It ain't going to work. And I know I'm preaching to the choir because all of you are here. I get that. But you and I both know there's people that said that to you, right? You know that. They've said things like that. They've compromised. They're tolerating Jezebel. That's what's really happening. And he says, you hold fast until I come. You know what this idea of holding fast? Holding fast means I hold on with dear life. I'm not giving this up. I will not compromise. I, I will, I will go to my grave believing what? What you have. The scriptures. What Jesus has had. What Jesus has said. And Jesus himself. Hold on to me. Hold on to the scriptures with dear life. Don't let go. So many Christians are not holding fast. They've actually let Jesus go. And they're floating in space. This idea of holding fast is don't compromise. Hang in there until I come. And the idea is the rapture with that. So he goes, verse 26, and he who overcomes, overcomes this Jezebel aspect and keeps my works until the end, Christ's way, not the pagan way or Jezebel's way, to him I will give power over the nations. Verse 27, he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel, as I also have received from my father. The first thing that he promises you and I who escape the Jezebel aspect. If you stay clean in your theology, the promise is you will rule with me in the kingdom. And that's not to all believers. That's to only believers who refuse to allow Jezebel to infiltrate her or him. I'll let you rule with me. And then he goes, verse 20, and I will give him the morning star he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is this idea of the morning star? Jesus is the morning star. The morning star is the Shekinah glory of Messiah. He shines like the morning star on a, the, the dawn of a new day. The morning star, Shekinah glory, is a light, a splendor that will be shared with us during the kingdom age for those who also escape this Jezebel aspect. Not only will you rule, but there will be a luminescent feature to those believers who pass this test about them in the kingdom. It will be their own glory. And he says, I will give you that morning star if you do that. So basically what you have is you will rule over the nations and you will rule with the splendor of Christ's glory. That's the promise. I don't know all the depths of that. I don't know all the details of that, but they're pretty good. If Messiah says they're good, they're good, and you want that. He says, hang in there, hold fast, and I promise you this is what will happen if you, if you do this. Don't let go. Keep careful. Keep faithful. Let me give you a story, and we'll end on this to, to, to illustrate. That's, that's the application of hold fast. Hold fast until I come. Hold fast until I come of holding fast. If you've ever been into like the Jameson Center or wherever they take kids who don't have parents or anything, have been disregarded and they're orphans, they end up going to these places and, or they're being hurt by, by their parents or something, they end up going to these, I don't know, orphanages, safe homes, whatever you want to call them. 
There was a little girl who entered into one of these safe homes. She must have been 12, 13 years old. And she entered into one of these safe homes. She didn't have a family or anything. She'd been on the streets or whatever, but she went into one of these safe homes. And she came in there, and most of the time when they're in those places, the, the organization will give them like a teddy bear or like a stuffed animal to hold on to because usually the kids want to hold on to something because everything's been taken away from them. And this little girl, they didn't have to give her a teddy bear, but she dogmatically and fanatically was holding on to a coffee can. Odd. The workers thought that was odd as well, and they thought, holding on to a coffee can, this little girl will not let it go. She's just, she takes it everywhere. She'd go into the dining hall, and she'd have this coffee can with her. And she, you know, in times when she felt upset or whatnot, she would go to her room, and she'd sit there with that coffee can, just rocking, just rocking. And she'd grasp it as tight as she possibly can. Couldn't figure out what was going on with her. They thought maybe there was some mental problem or something like that. You know, it's like, man. They finally, one day, she was kind of in a better mood. One of the workers asked her, may I ask you what's in the can? And she was willing to talk that day, and she says, sure, it's my mother. It's my mother's ashes. Now, the backstory on this they found out it truly was the mom. But they found something else out about the mom. The mom had abandoned her in a trash can when she was a baby. So this little girl was found by someone else, right? She's been in foster home and foster home. And she finally, when she was old enough, started seeking out where her mother was, and they found her. By the time she found her, the mother was in a hospital, and she was dying. And it wasn't a few days after she found her that the mother died. Now, I want you to think about that. This was a mother who had put her own baby in a trash can, and yet the little girl goes and seeks to find her and found, found out that she truly was put in a trash can, rejected, discarded. And so when they went to... The funeral home, she told the funeral home, I want my mom's ashes. And she grabbed them and put them in a coffee can. That's all she had. And she was holding on to them. And you think, from her standpoint, why would you want to do anything with your mother? Your mother rejected you. you she, she, she discarded you. She didn't want anything to do with you. And you found her, and then she dies uh, because of, of the sin she was involved in. Why would you want to caress and hold on to your mother like that? That's how powerful the human bond is to their own parents when you see a child holding on to the very mother who rejected her. Now, bring this to Christ. Christ has done everything for us. He died on the cross for our sins. He has never rejected us. He always loves us, wants the best for us. Why would we not hold on that hard to him? He wasn't like that girl's mother. Do you see the contrast? She was willing to hold on to someone who rejected him, and Christ is worthy of holding on to and holding fast to. Why are there so many people 
not grasping him and holding on for dear life. That's the attitude you and I have to have to get through this. Christ has got to be everything. And when we have those times where we can't deal with life, you've got to go to him and hold fast to him like that little girl was. I'm using a bad example to show you a good example if you catch the drift. Hold fast. Hold on to me as tight as you can. Don't let go. Listen to everything I say. I'm taking you through life. Do everything I tell you to do and you'll be safe. You'll make it through. Hold on to me. I'm the only one that can navigate through this difficult life. Please hold on to me. Don't let go. Don't let go. That's what Jesus is telling us. Because the minute you let go, you will be out in Jezebel's territory and I'm your protector. I will give you the covering that you need. I will give you the authority and protection. Don't get away from me. You will have to hold on to Jesus in these days coming ahead as tight as you ever have held on to him. If not, the whore will try to get you. The admonition from Scripture, hold fast till I come. He's coming. He's coming for us. He's standing by waiting for that right time, and he will say, come up here. It's time. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.